0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, this is Karki, and today I have with me Professor Kedar Kulkarni. He is Associate Professor of Literary and Cultural Studies at Flame University in Pune, India. He joins us today to talk about his book, World Literature and the Question of Genre in Colonial India, Poetry, Drama, and Print Culture, 1790 to 1890, published this year. Hello, Dr. Kulkarni, how are you today?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me here. And, um, you know, it's, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: As always, I'd like to start with the genesis of this book. How did this book come to me? What were some initial ideas when you started writing this book?
1: Thank you. I think these are always very difficult questions to answer because genesis of books um, often take years They can take the form of applying for graduate school, they can take the form of someone's dissertation, or they can be entirely different. When I started this project, uh, it actually was a part of my dissertation. And somewhere along the line, I essentially scrapped the entire dissertation. There might be four pages that are similar to it uh, in the book, but I essentially scrapped it. And um, what I decided to focus on uh, was how to fit uh, Marathi literature, which at the time, was largely non-novelistic, was mostly performed into a modern paradigm of world literature studies or contemporary paradigm of world literature studies. And so the genesis of this book, I would say, really emerged maybe around 2015, several years after I defended my dissertation. um, From the point of view of thinking through how colonialism really affects or transforms Indian literature, of course, I can't deal with all of Indian literature, I can only deal with literature in the languages I know, which is Hindi and Marathi, and uh, so I thought, let me let me actually look at Marathi literature and see how colonialism transforms it through its own processes, whether it's the implementation of. Um, print technology in colonial India, whether it's through a reorganization of bureaucracy and education, and all these other questions that, that were actually classic post-colonial studies questions in the late 80s and early 90s, but I feel like never really permeated from the paradigm of English literature into the paradigm of Indian language literatures, um, such as Marathi, Hindi, Bengali, Uriya, Tama, etc. Yeah.
0: And the title of your book is World Literature and the Question of Genre in Colonial India. Um, I mean, the question begs itself, why should genre be a subject of debate when you're talking about um, world literature?
1: Uh, That's that's a really important question, too. Um, Different places in the world have different relationships to literature. And um, sometimes in situations such as India in the 19th century, literacy was so low in a kind of textual, graphic literacy way uh, that by 1911 in Sumit Sarkar's now classic book on modern India, 1% of the population was literate in English and 6% in Indian languages. And sure, that was a very powerful and influential sector of the population, but there's a whole other world out there beyond textuality. So um, when we think about it that way, classic studies in world literature, and I'm not the first person to make this claim, this is not my original claim, but I'm kind of, this is not my original idea, but I do want to refine it a little bit, which is classic studies of world literature approach the novel as a genre. Um, And despite a lot of literature on the novel in India, um, Meenakshi Mukherjee has several volumes of this, you can't get away from, essentially what is um, Franco Moretti's claim that the novel is essentially an import from Europe to which other places in the world add their own content, right? This kind of fundamental importation idea of the novel is is pretty standard. And um, that's fine. Other genres have different relationships to colonialism. Amin Mufti talks about how the guzzle goes in reverse. The guzzle, guzzle goes from essentially, you know, North Africa to South Asia, like this kind of this... Classic oriental territory to the West, right? It travels in the reverse direction. Um, but I think I also want to revise this idea of poetry being different from this um, from this importation model by saying that in South Asia, even poetry in the 19th century was a genre of performance. And the way I can explain this is, you know, there's this very famous movie starting with from 1981 called Umrao Jahan. And in this she is um, the highest rank of courtesan, uh, John, and she's trying to write a new song to perform to her patrons called Dil Chi It's a great number, it's fantastic, sung by Asha Bhosle. And she goes to Angustan and asks him to help her correct her poem. Now the movie could end just there, or that scene could end just there, but the scene continues and we actually see Rekha dance, albeit poorly, And you hear Asha Bosle sing. And I always think about reading the poem versus hearing it sung and being danced out loud through this kind of scene in Umrah. Jan. What would it be like to actually be at a Mefu or um, uh, be at a mushaira, where people are speaking their poetry in a public setting rather than reading it privately in their room or privately through exchanging letters entirely like that. And so Um, While, obviously, the critiques of the novel as a world literature genre are legion, and many of those critiques involve poetry, I think we can go a little bit step further from poetry and think about it as a genre of performance, rather than the kind of um, new critical idea of poetry, which is reading something closely and textually to gain its meaning. That's why I think genre is a very significant aspect of this book.
0: Thank you for your answer. My second question is about the time period. You're talking about the long 19th century and Marathi literature during that period. Uh, And you have very specific time, for example, 1790 to 1890 that you mentioned, even in the title of this book. Why did you choose this uh, 100 years as a time period for your
1: study? Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the date, the exact 100 years is slightly arbitrary. But my main point in choosing this time period was to think about the before and uh, before and during colonialism, right? Um, one of the fun things about working on a place as large as South Asia is just how big and diverse and interesting it is. And one of those things that's interesting about it is colonialism is not a monolithic thing, even in South Asia. Um, people often talk about the Battle of Plassey in 1757 as the kind of defining moment in which the East India Company gains a foothold in Bengal. Right? But other parts of India don't come, unto, come under colonial rule until much later. As late as 1837, if we think about Punjab, right? 17, late 1790s is my sort of Tipu Sultan. The Marathas in the Anglo Maratha Wars, 1803, 1818. Um, so these all operate in different temporalities. And for me, of course, writing about Marathi literature, 1818 is a defining date at which the Peshwa is finally deposed and the Maratha empire is essentially dissolved. And um, so I wanted to look before that date a little bit to think about what kinds of literary practices prevailed in the Maratha empire, and then speak about how those practices changed throughout the course of the 19th century. Um, and so change requires, of course, looking at a significant amount of time. You can't take your kind of synchronic view of things and think about how everything happened in 1840 or 1825 or whatever it may be. So I wanted to kind of do a little bit of both. I wanted to think about the long durée as well as, you know, look at the synchronic view as well. So uh, in many of my chapters, I look at the synchronic view but the whole book is directed towards this long durée arc of change, this narrative of change in monarchy literature.
0: Uh, and in your book, you're talking at several places or the need uh, to bridge this gap between post-colonial studies and comparative literature. Why is there such a need?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, when I was first a student in er- the early 2000s as an undergraduate, post-colonial studies was still hot. And, um, but it was also the time when Spivak had just published her critique of post-colonial reason. Book, I think that's 2001 or 2002. And people were really into speaking still about Baba, about hybridity, about subalternity, um, Orientalism. These are still very relevant and topical kind of discourses. And they still remain with us. And they're really vital to the way we think about comparative literature, literary studies, let alone like disciplines like anthropology and stuff, which have also been greatly affected by the post colonial turn. But by and large, if I look at some of the um, major and classic and defining studies of postcolonial literature, they mostly approach literatures in the English language. And part of that is an institutional problem in, in the North, Euro-North American Academy, which is postcolonial studies became institutionalized in English departments, and people weren't getting tenure uh, for writing writing books on what's happening in Maldaram at the time, right? Um, whereas, conversely, comparative literature was also a discipline dominated by French, German, and Italian. Oh, sorry. French, German, and English. Um, Italian and Romance languages surrounding, Slavic languages are another thing. And so, um, obviously, comparative literature as a discipline has changed significantly over the past 20, 25 years. And you can see this at major conferences like the ACLA, for example. There are a number of different panels on all sorts of languages from around the world. Uh, whereas I think post-colonial studies, especially literary postcolonial studies, is still kind of stuck somewhere and I want to bridge that gap by kind of making sure that there is room within post-colonial studies for the kinds of exciting approaches that scholars of post-colonial literature, oh, scholars of comparative literature and world literature studies are doing. Um, and so that bridge that bridging still needs to happen. I mean, I hope this will be occasion for more people to write about, literature is other than English. I know it's, I know that when you look at the job market, it's still Anglophone, 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 but I feel like there's more than that, you know, and there are a number of people who have done this. I think, um, a colleague of mine did this also published by Bloomsbury. I know Michael Allen has his book about, uh, Arabic and Egypt. And I think these, these texts are really shifting the ground in which we understand post-colonial studies in a colonial study, in a, in a colonial setting. And also the way, um, Minoritarian languages relate to majoritarian ones that are traditionally studied, like English, French, German.
0: And this is somehow also related to my next question, where uh, in your uh, in your book you are seeking to redefine or reconsider the way the literature is conceptualized uh, right now in that academia. So, so the first thing is, why is there a need to rethink literature as a concept, and how can how can we do that. I mean, what is it that we need to uh, ask when we are reconceptualizing literature?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one of something I think about is the way children grow up. And um, this is not limited to children, but I think this is a good example to use right now, which is all of the stories I heard growing up as a kid, whether it's from parents or grandparents or extended family, no one sat with me to read a book and tell these stories to me. I didn't learn nursery rhymes, nursery rhymes by reading a book either. And um, I think for a lot of people, oral literature and oral traditions are very strong. Um, even in even in my classes today here at Pune, India, I think my students are more from a talking culture than they are a reading culture. Um, and I think once we account for that, not just in children's stories, What kind of outside of maybe major urban areas in South Asia, where, you know, things like, you know, that are not, that are called folk literature, for example, uh, really have a lot more currency. In my environmental writing class, I wanted to teach a narrative uh, by the Dhandar community, uh, a folk narrative that's been translated uh, by Anne Feldhaus recently. And I thought to myself... Uh, well, this might be difficult to teach, but then I Googled it. and of course there's a YouTube video where you have some performer singing it and I have the text right there. So I think expanding the notion of literature to think about orality and performance um, makes sense. And I think we have the tools now to do that. Whether it's folk literature or whether it's traditional Indian theater such as Kuryatam or Kathakali, they're all on YouTube, they're all subtitled. And kind of bringing them in to the category of literature I think is something... Uh, That's actually the next frontier because it it takes you away from kind of these urban spaces, which are, of course, the cosmopolitan spaces where you have a very thin veneer of people circulating around the globe. Uh, A colleague of mine once told me this joke. He said whenever he leaves Pune, he thinks there are 600 people in the world. And then when he comes back to Pune, he's like, no, 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 there are actually only 300 people in the world and they all know each other, you know. And I think living in urban spaces, it's really different. From living outside of urban spaces, and I think, I think we have to account for that in a country like South Asia, where seventy percent of the people is still rural. Seventy percent of the population is still rural, even though most of the news generated happens in urban areas. Right. So, what do people read? What is their kind of, um, what is their way? What is their way of entertaining themselves when they're not? When they're not at work or when they're not doing their chores or whatever it may be. And that takes you away from this kind of normative textual definition of literature. And we need to expand that for that reason. Because most people do use cell phones, most people do watch YouTube videos, and all of those things, Damasha, um, Jatra, everything is available on YouTube to watch. And maybe in a class on world literature, there should be more kind of units on oral performance, oral narrative, or whatever it may be. Um the way I think about this in another sense is you know i feel like sometimes and i'm an urban i'm an urban academic so you know this critique applies to me too which is sometimes we want to see a novel about the dhunga community in the same way that we want to read spivak's translations of mashweta devi mashweta devi was a brahmin woman from a literary family um, and who walked through all the privileges that that entailed, right? But there are also narratives by indigenous communities that we ought to read instead and think about them as literature rather than kind of shifting them to the side as folk literature or something that's traditional, etc. cetera. And so I do think the idea of literature as conceptualized today needs to be expanded, especially in a country like South Asia. And I can't speak for everywhere else, but this is my sense over here that you can't just write or read literature through novels, poetry, or even theater for that matter, because a lot of performance doesn't happen in a theater. Yeah.
0: Uh, And coming back to uh, to performance, not conference, uh, coming back to performance, very early in the book, you're saying, and I'm quoting here, nowhere is there a clear display of performance genre and their interrelated and layered historical past than on theatrical wall posters. What does that mean?
1: I loved this this funny thing I found at the archives, or these theatrical wall posters. They kind of essentially just advertisements glued to walls, and they have all sorts of you know you know they have all sorts of empirical data on them. Let's put it that way: the night of the performance, how long it lasts, how much ticket costs, who uh, in what classes you can sit, amongst men, women, uh, behavior that's appropriate. To being in a theater, etc., like all of these things are on the playbill, and they're really fascinating because I didn't just get one or two of them; I got about five or six of them, and some of them were earlier and some of them were later. So some of them are from the early eighteen seventies, and some of them are from the late eighteen eighties. And in that twenty, almost twenty-year time period, there's a massive change that you see in the way. Um, printers use typography in the way the imagery works on the playbills and the kinds of performances you see on there as well. These were like my entryway into this whole project. And I wrote about them more in, a, in, a, in my first article, which I'm obviously like, you know, like everyone else, I have some kind of embarrassment when I look at my first article. And I can't believe I wrote it, but um, they, they were my entryway into this wider world, which let me really see to the past as well as the present day and think about historical change. So one of the fun things when you look at these playbills, the earlier versus the later ones, is um, the earlier playbills are generally um, not about a single performance it takes the whole night to perform. They are about performing many different episodes, and each of those episodes has a very different Kind of emotional valence or emotional register. Some of them are about Shingar or Eros. Some of them are about like disgust. There's a scene in one of them that's mentioned about disemboweling and the stomach bursting. Um, I wish I could recover a description of these where you could actually see see what's happening. You know, how do they do that? How do they stage that? Um, that would be amazing to see that, but um, unfortunately, I don't. But I have I have a number of layered kind of um, uh, emotions and sensibilities that you're supposed to feel watching this, and there are a number of genres. There are akyans, there are charitras, there are um, farces. So you have these different genres, you have different emotional registers that you're supposed to feel, and um, in the later ones, you don't. In the later ones, you'll see an integrated play, like one play, whether it's Shakuntala, Sangit Sobhadra, um, this is, of course, middle-class drama. A lot of the stuff from the earlier playables remains, but it doesn't necessarily remain um it changes i don't want to say it's completely gone but it changes and in the later playbills what you see are are like a unified integrated performance of one play and that play may take 2 days to perform but it's one play and um that change to me is significant between a kind of variety type show versus a singular show where you're supposed to feel many different things to something that has like one primary emotion, but has se- several secondary emotions attached to it. Um, the biggest change for me is also um, on, the, on the prices, especially for women to attend the performance. Earlier playbills, uh, for women, they say gartis, which is family women, or they say nayakinis and kasbinis. Nayakinis and Kasmiis are female performing artists, whereas later later playbills for the female performing artists just say, Vesha uh, or prostitutes. And this change in which women performers are recoded as prostitutes, is a fundamentally interesting change for me because it speaks to middle class sensibilities to evacuate the theatrical space of all sorts of sexual transactions. It speaks to changes in how the middle class saw performers in general. Um, And of course, there's a historical corollary, which is the Contagious Diseases Acts of the late 1860s really pauperized many of the kinds of performers that might have earned a living from, um, I I don't wanna say, you know, courtesan culture. I mean, there are a number of articles on courtesan culture in in India during this time in which the performance can lead to a sexual transaction of some point after a certain amount of patronage or whatever it may be. But these, these acts, of course, change the nature of female performance in colonial India. And you see that registering on the playbill itself in the categorical change from a performing artist, such as a Nike or Kasmini, to a performing artist who is just labeled Visha. So you see all sorts of references to the past and present, genre, emotion, reception, behavior, sexuality, all on the Playbills. And they were so eye-opening because they're right there and no one's spoken about them. So I was like, oh my God, I have to speak about this because this is such a great source. And I was so lucky to be able to include them in the book as well.
0: And if I may digress a little, why why was this change happening? for example, the 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 first change that you were talking about from many different uh, parts of the show to one play which was going over, let's say for two days. Why did this change happen? Is this colonialism working in the sense that people are reading theaters, getting exposed to the European theater? Is, is that one of the reasons? Or do you think this- Yeah, is- I mean, that's,
1: that's a really important reason. Um, you know, I, I try to circumvent this question of uh, influence versus rupture in my book, which is to what extent are Indian li- literatures formed on the basis of rupture? And to what extent are they continuous with their pre-colonial past? And I think there, obviously there are elements of both in that but what i'd say is in um throughout the 1850s onwards and even before that but not so much before that but after the 1850s you have these big colonial circuits for theatrical troops to follow so they you know might leave somewhere in the uk and then then come down the coast go through egypt did they go through egypt i don't know if the Suez canal was built at that point maybe not go around the Cape of Good Hope, you know, stop off at every colonial port city, you know Bombay somewhere in Sri Lanka, Calcutta, then go on to Singapore all the way down to Australia and back. They're doing these long circuits and they're performing a repertoire of large plays. And all of the students that start uh, the middle class students essentially that start this musical theater tradition in Marathi, they're watching these plays. And they're adopting this dramaturgy, even though a lot of the content of their plays may remain based on the Ramayana or the Mahabharata or something like that. So they are adapting this dramaturgy. Like you can see a perfect five act dramatic structure in many of these plays, right? Um, and so I think that idea of carrying an emotion to a climax and letting it fall towards the end is, um, is not necessarily an Indian notion right? But I think that is a large influence on why uh, theater moves from this multifarious experience to a singular one, is partially to talk about civility and show yourself as civilized in some ways, right? I speak about this a little bit in chapter three with reference to Shakuntala and talk about how theater and playing in the theater was a form of showing yourself as civilized at this time for the middle class audience. I also speak a little bit about uh, this same issue in one of my articles about slavery and performance in South Asia, where I talk about middle, course, middle class moralistic discourse that tries to evacuate all of these disgusting or extra erotic moments from the theater over the course of the 19th century. So um I think I think they're they're both. It's part moralistic. It's part wanting to show yourself as civilized. It's part kind of adopting this dra- dramaturgy that you see. The Bandman Company, I believe, is a really important company that goes all over the world um, and actually uh, performs Shakespeare all over the world. So um, there are a number of other theater- theatrical companies. There's a there's a dissertation um, published on this uh, many years ago called English Drama on the Bombay Stage that I wish someone had found the means to publish this in the form of a book, because it has a lot of great, It raises, it's one of the first works that really deals with this topic in such an archivally rich way. And um, she talks about this kind of theatrical troops uh, moving, God, I forget her name right now, moving around the world and kind of um, essentially not teaching dramaturgy, but having local audiences adapt that kind of dramaturgy as well.
0: And uh, coming back to the question of post-colonialism and world literature, you say that the disruption of colonization in South Asia transformed Marathi literature from panchronic to verca- vernacular ecology. What does that mean?
1: Okay. So when I wrote this book, I was trying to ride two horses at once. In the first case, I was self-consciously writing through established paradigms in world literature studies that see models of competition, recognition, technology, um, and progress, essentially capitalism, uh, that come with that as a kind of commodity and literature as a kind of commodity designed to be exchanged, right? Um, but more recently, Alexander Beecroft's uh, work and ecology of world literature instead speaks of literature ecolog- ecologically, using the metaphors from biology um, instead. And rather than assigning everything an exchange value that is determined by a cash amount and somehow being able to form equivalents like you know, the mouse of my computer cost me five dollars and the um, pencil case I have also cost five dollars. So they're equivalent in value. Ecologies doesn't actually attri- attribute that kind of equivalence to literary texts or to things in nature because they all serve a specific function. Right. They're not exchangeable in the same ways. I can't ask you, hey, would you rather read this novel um, or would you rather go watch a performance of Tamasha? I think you might have your preferences, but those two things are incomparable. There's no there's no cash value that you can assign to them that really allows them to be compared properly. And I think that model of ecology was very valuable to the way I think about literature. And Beecroft especially um, thinks about um, a number of different literary ecologies, one of which is a pancork ecology, and for him, the classical model for that is a Greek city-states. You have all of these different city-states in ancient Greece that kind of have a shared culture, but they don't have kind of a political center in the same way. And when I thought about Marathi literature in the 18th century, it was kind of like that. It's very political to say whether it's a Maratha empire or whether it's a Maratha confederacy, because over the course of the late 17th and all of the 18th century, um, all of the kind of local potentates that comprise the Maratha Empire, whether it's the Gaikwards of Baroda, the postles of Nagpur, etc., etc., they essentially develop significant dominions and capabilities of their own. So and even though they're loosely allied to the Bishwa of Pune. So this kind of metaphor of pancoric ecology, where you have a shared kind of Marathi-speaking culture, they're patronizing the same poets, the same kinds of literatures, but at the same time, their alliance is always being negotiated and renegotiated. And so, I thought it was a good metaphor to use for Marathi literature at this time period too—a pan ecology, where the political center is not so strong, but the regional center is kind of subscribed to this to this similar kind of uh, model of patronage, etc. Now, what Beecroft says is a pan ecology can become a cosmopolitan one with a stronger pan-regional kind of influence. And he talks, of course, about uh, Hellenism of Alexander the Great, okay? And so I thought Marathi literature at this time was kind of aspiring to that at the moment, right? Marathi was used as administrative language all the way from Peshawar all the way down to Arkot. This is a huge part of India that is using Marathi language for administrative purposes, but it never became cosmopolitan because the Maratha empire collapsed. Rather, what happened is, it saw itself in relationship to a new cosmopolitan language, English. Whereas before it had seen itself in relationship to Sanskrit, now it also saw itself in relationship to English. And so rather than going from pancoric to cosmopolitan, it went from pancoric to vernacular. It was it was inscribed within a regional setting rather than becoming a cosmopolitan thing. So the, these ideas, I mean, obviously I use them metaphorically. I'm not using them in a super precise way, but there are certain certain ideas that are evocative that help us understand these historical transformations. And so when it went from pancork to vernacular, I'm really relying on Alexander Beecroft's work to kind of distance myself a little bit from the economic models that are so um, prevalent in literary studies.
0: Uh, And uh, coming to chapter three, you're talking about the play, uh, everyone's favorite play, Shakuntala. And you're saying Shakuntala uh, is an oriental text Uh, as an oriental text played a significant role in the way Indian literature was uh, conceptualized and understood in foreign locales. Can you elaborate on what that means?
1: I can, I just want to go back to the earlier question for one last comment, which is one of the hallmarks of a vernacular literature, according to Beecroft, is that it borrows a lot from cosmopolitan literatures. So when you asked me about why these playbills show one play instead of many things, I think this idea of borrowing from all these theater troops that are going in, I think ideas of translations from Sanskrit and English into Marathi, these are all kind of the hallmarks of a vernacular literary ecology. And um, so I just wanted to underline that part a little bit. Um, your question of shakutala, Shakuntala, yes. Um, it was an oriental text in the sense that, you know, after it was translated. Um, so William Jones, I think, first translated into Latin and then into English. I don't remember the exact kind of process, but after it was translated, it kind of, um, it blew up a little bit. Goethe commented on it, Harder commented on it, um, you know, Victor Hugo, etc. There are a host of European intellectuals, romantic thinkers who commented, commented on Shakuntala. And like something like the Arabian Nights, it became one of these kind of focal points on how to understand India. Right, um, uh, James Mill is a, the senior; is James Mill, John Stewart is a younger. But one of them also commented on it, and um, it becomes this kind of larger than life text that it's kind of metonymic. It is the text that stands in for the entire society. It's like saying, "Oh, you want to understand England? Look at Shakespeare. You want to understand? Um, or you want to understand? I don't know, France? Look at Victor Hugo." Right? Um, it's like the text that really comes to define. Literature in South Asia for a while And um, So themes about pastoralism Princely license The idea of Shakuntala as first a wild maiden Who is kind of beautiful And in nature um, But then by the end of the century as times change She becomes the image of a fallen woman you know, So it, it comes up and resurfaces Throughout the 19th century As a way to understand relationships Between princes, their people Between women And sexuality, etc. And that's why I call it kind of like this um, uh, oriental text that really plays a strong role in understanding India. But I, I don't do that. I situate it in India as a performance. So it, it's not about everything outside of India and how India is understood through Shakuntala, but it's how Shakuntala actually uh, works within an Indian context.
0: And how does it work within the Indian context?
1: Um, well, I mean, all of these things are very regional and very kind of, you know, the fun thing about this Shukundala chapter for me is that it resonates directly with some court cases between princes and um, their kind of tutors. So throughout the early, throughout the 19th century, the East India Company had this policy of giving princely states a Brahmin tutor to kind of, to train the prince in order to kind of make the prince knowledgeable in modern political science, essentially, in modern statecraft is probably a better word than political science statecraft. And you see this in a number of different princely states. And sometimes those relationships weren't very willing. They weren't very accommodating and there's a lot of friction between them. So you see that relationship a little bit enacted in the way people talk about this play in the Indian press at the time. Because there is one really important case in 1880, where the Maharaja of Kolhapur, I think, um, has an argument and a uh, newspaper sues this guy named Vasudeva Barve about the way he tutored him and all this other stuff. And that really gets refracted through the play of Shakuntala. Uh, one also sees the contagious diseases acts and the way performing women were kind of displaced and turned into common prostitutes. I think that can also be filtered through our understanding of Shakuntala and the way the, way the figure of the fallen woman, kind of um, the way Shakuntala becomes a figure of a fallen woman by the end of the century. So all of these things, I, I kind of really historically situated. I talk about patronage, uh, the way the way princes patronize Brahmins, the way the colonial government patronizes their new middle class Brahmin employees, etc. So it's filtered through all of these registers of caste, class, sexuality, and I really try to do a micro history of the play from about eighteen eighty-two to maybe eighteen ninety some of the sources are really fun that was a really fun that was a really fun chapter to write like the letters between the government officials and the students saying like oh you performed the play so well blah 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 it's so patronizing and it's uh, it's fantastic sorry yeah. I, I, i'm supposed to give a plug for myself i really enjoyed writing this chapter
0: yeah and coming to the second play which is sangeet sobatra Subhadra becomes sobatra you uh say that uh, it created and projected a totalizing authorial discourse. How does it do that?
1: Yeah, so um, so we talked a little bit about how the play grill, playbills have this kind of singular playbill in the later ones, where you have a, one play as opposed to many different plays. And whenever I think about an authorial discourse, I think about Mikhail Bakhtin, who is kind of the preeminent theorist of an authorial discourse. And his main thing Is an authorial discourse is one that has the ability to unify many different narrative voices from their kind of um, disuniting tendencies so obviously as a marxist these narrative voices are emblematic of uh, different classes in society and they're in conflict with each other and what an authorial discourse does is allow the reader to see all of these different kinds of class conflict coexisting in that shared space. Now, if we think about that idea, I use that to talk about a genre in Kirloskar's play, Sangit Sahubhadra, which is you have different Indian performance genres that he kind of brings into the body of this play. So you see launis, you see Boaras, you see a number of different kinds of verse forms from Marathi literature, and he really he, and these are all used in their specific contexts. No one's, no one's, you know, singing a Lownie, um any time of day. No one's singing a poada any time of day. They're 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 designed for specific reasons and rationales in the performance traditions of that area. And he manages them to put them all into the space of the play. Have different characters sing these verse numbers. And that idea, if you take a narrative voice at the level of genre, I say Kirloskar is the master creator of an authorial discourse out of these many different poetic genres. So the narrative voice becomes a genre in my analysis, and Kid Lowsker obviously still remains the author, but he unites these different poetic registers that wouldn't always share the same textual space in the same way. Maybe in a knight's performance, they might go from a to, a to Z and kind of have different, um, different kinds of genres performed, but to see that they are embodied in that same spe- textual space, to me, is very interesting.
0: Uh, And coming uh, to the last notion that I want to talk about is the notion of the gift. Uh, And if I have understood uh, what you're saying correctly, is that you're saying that it's important to not only look from the gift of theory, from the perspective of the Europeans who are the receiving, but also from the perspective of the South Asians who are projected to be giving this gift. Um, And if my interpretation is correct, How can this theory of gift be understood from the South Asian perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, I like to think about exchange. So I'm not gonna go into like traditional theories of gift giving. I'm not interested in Marcel Mauss or Levi Strauss or even Derrida's idea of the free gift over here. Um, What I am interested in is kind of thinking about exchange, right? Gifting isn't a one way street. It's not just something the Europeans give and the Indians receive with their arms wide open and saying thank you for this gift, right? It goes in both directions. And for me, the biggest gift is the gift of theory that comes from the engagement with not just South Asia, but with other colonies around the world. Many of our dominant, like, you know, this is Derrida's critique of ethnology, of Levi Strauss, which is, ethnology as a discipline only exists because you confront the fact that, well, I mean, Europeans confront the fact that their ideas are not universal, right? And so um, uh, ethnology as a discipline is kind of a gift from the colonies to the center. We have other ways of thinking about this. I I spoke about Gauri Vishwanathan a lot in my book. The English curriculum is a curriculum that's developed in the colonies for civilizing the natives. And then this is exported back to England to civilize the lower classes. Right? This is another kind of gift. People talk about criminology in terms of like fingerprinting and all these other methods uh, um, that are also developed in South Asia and then sent back to the metropole to kind of use on their own population. So the idea of the colony, colony being a laboratory is very, very well established. But I wanted to look at one specific gift that I thought was especially significant that people had maybe occasionally mentioned here or there, but they hadn't really explored in depth. And that, to me, was through the figure of Saussure. Saussure, obviously, we all know everyone has to read him, either as an undergrad or as a grad student. He is like the granddaddy of literary studies in the 20th century because if you don't read Saussure, you don't know anything that comes after him. You don't know Lemmy Strauss. You don't know Derrida. You probably don't even know J.L. Austin very well. You don't know – I mean, all of, there's so many aspects of his linguistic theory. There aspects of his linguistic theory that touch upon everything – from formalism to deconstruction, and that's that's just how it is. He's the foundational figure. But when you read about him, or when you read him, there's no context ever giver for him. So if you read Foucault, you have to read Nietzsche before him. You have to read Althusser before you read Foucault, because Foucault's biopolitics is essentially Althusser's RSAs and ISAs reinvented in a post-Marxist kind of way. But with, with Saussure, there's no such thing required. And I was like, well... How is it possible that this guy who wrote his PhD on the genitive case in Sanskrit and how to use it, um, how is it this guy who lectured on 30, for 30 years about the Sanskrit language um, invents this theory of language that um, is kind of so, seems so ex nihilo. And um, when I was reading through some of my archives, I realized, and some of my texts, I realized that this idea of difference in terms of words, not actually referring to the objects themselves, but referring to other words around them through exclusion is actually a very Buddhist view of language. And it's called it's called the Apoha, specifically the Apoha, um, theorized by people like uh, Dignaga and Bhatrahari. I don't know if Bhatrahari is Buddhist, but it's specifically something that's a Buddhist view of language against a Brahminical understanding of language in which if you are reciting a Vedic mantra, the speaking of which is supposed to change reality. Well, for the Buddhists, speaking is meaningless unless it's through processes of exclusion. Um, and I think this fundamental difference between Buddhist and uh, and Brahminical ideas of language is the kind of thing that Sosur is picking up on. If you read his, uh, and beyond that, if you read his course in general linguistics, um, he has a diagram for where sounds come on your mouth, come out of your mouth, from the back of your throat to your lips. And I feel like when I when I was reading that the first time, I thought to myself, you know, when we learn to recite the English alphabet, we learn A B C D E F G, or in French A B C D E F J, and it, it's the same thing, but it has nothing to do with where the sounds come from in your mouth. But if you're learning Divnagri, it's G K G G N J J J J N, and Sozur could only have understood that if he had if he had read Banini's grammar like there's no other way in which he would have understood that, and I wanted to really fill this gap in this connection and give Sosur a genealogy one that kind of lets us see. Well, listen, the foundational assumptions of so many thinkers are not so Syrian; they're actually Buddhist or Brahminical, and we have to really pay attention to that genealogy because that is a huge gift of theory that comes directly from the colonies to the colonizer. So something like JL Austin's idea of performative language is so profoundly Brahminical and Vedic. Um, one wondered like what after all is a performative utterance, something uttered within specific contexts and with specific intentions. What is that if not ritual language spoken to alter reality? So, um, for me, uh, when I thought about the gift, it was his gift of theory from the colonies to the colonizer. And, um, you know, the way I thought about this, another way to think about it is many years ago, I was in a class where the professor was lecturing about the later Roman Empire and he was lecturing about St. Augustine of Hippo, which is essentially in Libya. And he spoke, you know, he said something really interesting to me. And I think at this point, this is about 10 years ago, I think postcolonial studies had finally started reaching classical studies at this point. And he said in the later Roman Empire, a lot of Roman culture starts to be defined from the peripheries of Rome. And um, the colonies in this sense are the peripheries that are defining the, um, the colonial center at this point, especially through their ideas. Um,
0: yeah, um, since we're at the end of the podcast, I have one last question for you. What do you hope the readers take from this book?
1: Ah, oh, that's a great question. Um, there are two big takeaways from this book. Um, The first one is, I think I'd like to say that deconstructing hegemonic systems only goes so far if there's no dearth of alternative visions afterwards. And, you know, for example, with my deconstruction of Saussure, I also provide an alternative history for this to happen. And so I want my book to be seen as an alternative history of how literature changes through through the colonial encounter. I think that to me is very important. Um, I re-narrate the story of Marathi literature by placing it within a world system, both economic and ecological. Um, And I respond to post-colonial scholarship and Marathi scholarship um, on ruptures and continuity to make my claim. So part of my critique is almost a foundational critique A deconstruction, but there's also a history, there's also a literary history, a rewriting, a historical revision that makes amends and provides a course correction. Um, And secondly, I think we, my second big takeaway is, forget about English, right? I mean, obviously I'm not the first person to say this, but I think the logic of the university press, the North American University Press, is such that it doesn't take risks anymore, even though That's what it was designed to do, is to publish risky works that wouldn't find mainstream uh, media publication, right? Um, So I would say India is not monolingual. And no matter how much you speak about English or how sophisticated you make your argument about English, there are at least 25 other uh, official languages in India, let alone hundreds of other um, lesser, lesser known ones. So... Um, please take away the idea of the vernacular from this book as a site where real exchange happens as a site where critique happens and as a real source of ideas. Yeah.
0: Uh, and I'm not, sh- I, I, I think it's a little bit too early to ask, but I, I think uh, you can still answer this question is uh, what are you working on right now? What can we hope to read from you in the future? Yeah.
1: Um. I am working on a project right now called Animal Aesthetics, rereading the non-human in South Asia. And it's my step away slightly from a historicist and archival methodology. And I instead speak broadly about the environment animals and animals in literature, film, art, past and present, and in multiple Indian languages. I can't give away more than that because I don't know what it's about <laughs> entirely yet, but um, you know, I, I, hope, I hope I'll hope i get to speak with you again in four years. And if not, maybe another grad student like you who's also doing this podcast, which is really fun to fun to be on. So thank you for having me here.
0: Well, I hope I'm still doing it in the next four years and I'll meet you again. Um, but thank you. That, that does sound like a fascinating project and I hope to read this book soon from you. Thank you for taking the time out to talk to me.
1: Thank you for having me.